Welcome to the Data John podcast. Today is April 8th, 2020, and we're still social distancing because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, today, we are joined by Ellie Fight, a professor at Drexel University. Ellie, along with her colleagues, have developed a new method for determining sample size for an A-B test to maintain profitability. They call this method the test and roll. Good afternoon, Ellie. How are you? How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Dan? I'm doing excellent. Also with me is Patrick. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing, I'm still alive and kicking. It's uh, interesting times. Um, for those of you listening in on this um, weeks ahead of time, um, we're, I guess, what, four weeks into this now? And it's definitely changed quite a, a, a bit of people's worlds. But um, luckily, we're, we're able to keep the Philly Data John going and um, get great speakers, which is, is, is fantastic. So we're really excited to talk to you today, Ellie. Yeah, can you imagine if you had called it the Philly Data Conference or something else? Since it's a job, whatever it wants to be, right? Exactly. Yeah, it can really be anything we want. That's right. And so I, I think this will be even better, and we'll capture the sh the show notes afterward and post them up there, so this will have a long life. Um, Great. So maybe if we get kicked right off, I, you know, we give us a little bit of your background for people who haven't um, spoken to you or know about your um, history. And then also I, what I found fascinating um, is that you've always been a big proponent of um, the intersection of data science and marketing analytics. And if you could just expand on that a little bit, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So um, I got into this about 20 years ago. I was at a happy hour um, with a senior colleague. I was working at General Motors at the time. I love cars. Um, and so my husband and I went to Detroit right after we finished college. I was working at GM and I was at this happy hour and I said to the guy, hey, you know what I really wanna do? I wanna use math to understand people so that we can make better cars. And so um, that guy introduced me to another guy and I, I ended up uh, in the market research group at General Motors. And it turns out there were a few people who were doing marketing research that were doing fairly high-end modeling that would be considered data science today. We didn't call it data science back then. So um, by following up with a friend of a friend of a friend, um, I actually ended up in a department where I was the technical lead doing high-end modeling to predict um, how, how many cars people would buy as a function of those features. And then I would work with chief engineers to help them design cars that would be more appealing to our customers. Um, so that's how I, I got into this. Way ahead um, of your time. It, yeah, it's been a great ride since then. Um, that was like a niche thing for maybe the first 10 years I was doing it. I got my PhD at Michigan, basically focused on that type of modeling, still working with cars. Um, and then I landed at the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative about 10 years ago. Um, and the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative was kind of right, uh, hit the, the leading wave of people who were working in marketing who were starting to collect large data sets but didn't quite know what to do with them. So those would be like uh, CRM databases, customer relationship management, where you're just logging every interaction you have with your customer. Um, it was also the web and digital analytics people who were also getting every single click that was happening in the online space. And those folks were building dashboards and kind of crummy visualizations. Um, they weren't really trained in data science. They just were marketers who happened to you know, catch this flood of data. And maybe more in the last five years, we've had this vision of data science. And the, the data science people are now starting to really mix it up with those who know a lot about what the marketing data reasons are. Um, you know, your firm, Patrick, would be kind of an exemplar of this. Um, 
And the ideas are really starting to flow about how we can use modeling together with this marketing data to provide better experiences. You've written a few books on these, right? Yeah. So um, I, I have a funny series of books. Uh, I have a friend of mine who works at Google. He's a UX designer at Google. Invited me to write a book with him called R for Marketing Research and Analytics. So that came out in 2015. Uh, and it's basically a how-to guide for people who are already working with marketing data to learn how to do the common types of models that uh, marketers might want to do using R. So we were kind of trying to push the data science uh, skill sets to the marketing community. In fact, the whole first half of the book is just a how-to guide on R because we figured most marketers wouldn't be familiar with that. And it's, um, it's just been adapted to Python by another Googler. uh, And that'll be, his name is, um, Oh, I'm spacing on my co-author's name. So I wrote the original R book with Chris Chapman and the Python adaptation is written by Jason Schwartz and that's going to be coming out um, this summer sometime. We're excited about that one. Yeah, I am too. I just finished reading it. I was the last uh, proofreader of it before it got submitted on Friday. So let's uh, dive in a little bit to um, the paper that you just published on uh, test and roll. So just real quick, what is A-B testing? What's it role? What is its role in data science? Yeah, so I'm a huge proponent of A/B testing in general, um, and so the idea is you have two different versions of a marketing communication. It could be anything: a website, an email, a catalog, any. Um, it could even be call center scripts, any kind of marketing. So you have two versions, and you don't know which one is better. So the idea of an A/B test is you randomly show the two versions each customer. And then you measure some kind of key performance indicator, some kind of KPI for each customer. So it could be um, how much they buy from you. It could be whether they click the next button on the website that you're trying to get them to click, whatever makes sense uh, in the marketing context. And the randomization part is really important. That's the magic. Um, and it, it, make, it allows you to make a clean comparison between two versions. If there's no Um, reason that you ended up in one group versus another other than a coin toss uh, that randomly assigned you to one or the other, then on average, the people who saw the two versions, the A and the B version, are on average the same. And so we can compare them and get a clean estimate of how much better is A than B. Uh, And you can't like think about it. If you were to compare customers who visited your website to customers who hadn't yet visited your website, that's not a clean comparison because people ended up at your website for a reason. People don't randomly visit websites. And so you would expect the KPIs to be higher for who visited your website versus not. Um, but when we do an A-B test, we take like say everybody who visited your website and we show them two different versions of that website and see which of them's better. Um, so it's kind of like sort of the magic trick for figuring out what kind of marketing communications work best. Um, there's really no better method. And I love talking about it. I love talking about it so much that I teach a whole class in designing marketing experiments at Drexel. Um, And it's an elective for our master's degree program. So we have a degree in business analytics and we also have a master's of marketing. Um, And those students can take this whole class in A-B testing, 10 weeks of it. Um, So that's how much I love talking about it. So why... uh... Why use A-B testing as a form of hypothesis testing opposed to maybe a more traditional like scientific approach of um, just, uh, you know, doing two, doing an experiment and then, and then doing a hypothesis test? Yeah, the, the terminology is tricky here. I can even see you're tripping over your words, Dan. Yeah. Um, so um, let me clarify the terminology a little bit. 
A-B testing um, as a term kind of came from the computer science community and it's just a general term for randomly assigning uh, the treatments and then measuring some kind of KPI. So you could also call that a randomized controlled trial. Uh, that's what the medical people call it. So that's just the general method. And then hypothesis testing is a way of analyzing an A-B test and it's the traditional way. So um, hypothesis tests are used to analyze randomized controlled trials of drugs. Hypothesis tests have also been kind of the traditional tool for analyzing A-B tests in marketing. And basically what my paper says is that's a really bad idea. Um, that that hypothesis testing approach of analyzing the data is not the right approach. Um, so then what is the right approach? Uh, so um, there's two things we need to think about how we're going to analyze the test. And then we have to think of a second thing, which is how many people need in the test for us to get a clean read. And so hypothesis testing as a way of analyzing has a specific sample size formula that goes with it. Um, and that sample size formula is the thing that I'm saying is really a bad idea for marketers to use. So if you've gone to like an A-B testing sample size calculator, calculator on the web, you are probably using the sample size formula that goes with hypothesis. So I'm going to jump over into an entirely different form of analyzing an A-B test, uh, which is a Bayesian approach. So I was trained as a Bayesian statistician. That's what I did my PhD in. Um, and I tend to favor it um, because it focuses on quantifying the range of performance for the A and the B treatments. So um, I might say, well, the, a, the click rate for the API is somewhere between 5 and 8%. Um, did that right? The click rate for version A is going to be somewhere between 5 and 8%. The click rate for version B is between, say, 7 and 12 percent. Uh, so it seems like B is better, but it could be that uh, A is better. And I can actually give you the probability that B is better. I can say there's an 80 percent chance that B is better. And I just find this more intuitive and something easier for marketers to deal with. Like if I said to a marketing manager, there's an 80 percent chance that B is better than A, um, and I guess I'll I'll pick on Patrick here. Patrick, like if I told you there's an 80% chance that B is better than A, what would you do? Go with B. Yeah, we should probably go with B. <laughs> we'll send B to all of our customers in the future because there's a good chance that it's better. So um, that's the Bayesian analysis. And so what we did in the paper was actually say, okay, if you're going to do the Bayesian analysis and kind of pick the one that's better, even if it's only like 70% chance it's better, you'll still go with that one, um, then how big should the sample size be? So the paper is really about an alternative sample size calculator, AB calculator. Does that make sense, Dan? That makes perfect sense. So let's talk about a sample size formula. And um, so you've developed a new sample size, it optimized, I believe you uh, mentioned it kind of allows or for smaller samples, which um, is more beneficial for when you're trying to uh, make to kind of get to profitability. Yeah. Um, so Kate, tell me about the formula a little bit and then also like what the process is like of developing a formula. Yeah, sure. So um, the first thing was that um, I actually thought for a long time, like maybe even years um, about the traditional sample size formula and what was under, what were the assumptions underpinning it? Um, I had taught it many times and every time I went to teach it, 
um, I would sort of think, why is this formula the way it is? And what is it set up to do? And um, to kind of put that in layman's terms, the formula, the hypothesis testing sample size formula that I don't like, uh, the traditional formula, is based on figuring out the sample size that you need to detect a very small effect. In fact, you actually have to specify what's the smallest size effect that would be important to you as a marketer, and that is an input into that formula. And I always found that very hard for marketers. Like when I would teach it to students, they'd be like, how do I know what the smallest effect is um, that I would be interested in? And the other thing that, that students would have as a problem is they'd, they'd do their sample size calculation and would say they needed 10,000 emails. And they're like, but the mailing list of the company I'm working with is only 3,000. So what do I do? Do I, do I not run the test? Um, do I run a smaller test that's not the one recommended by the formula? And, and I had noticed like both in industry and among my students, marketers were really struggling with this. And so I stepped back and said, well, what is it that marketers actually want to do? They want to maximize profit and they actually care about the profit in the test and the profit they make after the test. Uh, if I'm a scientist, I don't really care about the cost of the experiment. I'm just going to do my experiment and then... Um, I'm going to try to pick the best thing and I want to know it's the best thing always uh, and for all time. But if I'm a marketer, I don't really care that I know that it's the best thing so long as I'm getting maximum profit. So I literally wrote down a formula for what is the profit that you would make you're running an A-B test. So that took a little bit of math and some mathematical assumptions, but essentially once I had that formula, then... I had like literally an optimization problem from calculus. I was so excited when we got that formula because then it was just a calculus problem and you can take the derivative, set it equal to zero, and that's the sample size, um, just like you learned in your calculus class, if you remember. Um, and I was super excited about this because my daughter was taking calculus at the time I was doing this. So I like ran out into the kitchen and was like, hey, Zoe, I have a calculus problem for you. Um, but actually, Ron Berman, my co-author, who um, has been working on this project with me from the start, uh, he was actually the one who solved the calculus problem. And I think he used Mathematica as part of this. But essentially, in the end, it was take the derivative and set it equal to zero and solve for the sample size and not the formula. Surprising that, that uh, calculus is actually something you can use, huh, Dan? <laughs> um, so let's uh, talk about so the, the assumption. So yeah. uh, what, what kind of assumptions... Uh, exist when you're doing A-B? Well, that's actually kind of the great thing about A-B testing versus other approaches that you might use. Um, so there is actually an econometric approach to trying to figure out which types of marketing are working the best called marketing mix modeling. And that has a lot more assumptions baked into it. And it's hard to talk to um, someone who isn't a data scientist about what all those assumptions are. But with A-B testing, it's like the perfect entry level data science because there aren't a lot of assumptions. The assumptions are that you did the randomization right. And that's why it's kind of the gold standard uh, for proving that one treatment is better than the other. That's why essentially um, people who work in drug discovery and, and vaccine testing and all those kinds of fields in medicine um, use this randomization framework, the same basic setup as an A-B test. Um, in our specific formula, there are actually a couple of uh, two other assumptions you need to make. One is that 
um, you have to be able to tell me how many potential customers you have. So that actually becomes an input to the formula. And one of the nice features of the formula is it always gives you a sample size that's smaller than that population you put in as it. So if you have a mailing list of 1,500 people for your newsletter, and you want to do a subject line A-B test, you put um, 1,500 into the formula and it'll tell you, oh, you should run a test with 300 people and then deploy the better email to the rest of that 1,500 population. Um, so that's one thing it assumes. And the other thing is you have to be able to tell me something about how well your emails work in general. So I need some data, like if you had that newsletter, um, I might look at past newsletters to try to get a feel for what range of KPI do you typically get on those newsletters? And that is also an input to Mila. So the sample size that you get for your newsletter will depend on kind of how your new newsletter has performed typically in the past. And that might be a different answer than someone who's doing a test on display ads that have totally different performance. Does that make sense? That does make perfect sense. So one last question. So the you know traditional formula for calculating sample size is pretty... It is pretty simple, and while there's you know lots of challenges with using it, why why would you recommend you know someone a marketer use this method over you know uh, the more traditional the method? Traditional hypothesis testing formula. Totally fair question. Um, so uh, I want to be super clear that um, I do not think that the scientists that are going to test the vaccines. Um, against COVID-19 should use our sample. Because our sample size formula is really geared towards a situation where you're trying to make uh, the most profit possible um, and you have a limited population that you need to deal with uh, that you have available to make that profit. Uh, and you don't mind making mistakes. And you, you especially don't mind making littleness. And yeah. I, when it comes to testing drugs or vaccines, I actually do want them to not make mistakes. So the idea that they would put a very high standard on not making mistakes and detecting very small effects, um, like if hydrochloroquine works just a little bit better than nothing, I think we wanna know that as a society. And so they should be using the regular hypothesis testing approach, but uh, for marketers who um, are trying to maximize profit and don't mind making mistakes, uh, I think, they really all should switch over to the new sample size formula. Um, the other thing that you might find interesting, I actually presented it at a conference at MIT called the Conference on Digital Experimentation. There's a whole conference on digital experimentation. Uh, right. And a lot of the people there are working with very, very large scale platforms um, like Facebook or Twitter or Lyft. And they actually pushed back quite a bit on this method um, because sometimes when they're doing a test, they're not just thinking about um, deploying the results of this test and how much money that will make the company, but also that test result goes into like a knowledge bank that the company uses for other, as secondary data to solve other types of problems. So when you're thinking that you might use this information strategically beyond the scope of your test, our formula does not think about anything other than that population that you have to play with and other sort of broader uses of the results of the A-B test. So if you have an idea that you might be the results of that A-B test more broadly and applying it um, in other cases, then you probably should stick with that regular hypothesis. I think Make we should sense? start using some of these um, methods for business discussions. Or uh, Some of these things are going through my head. It's like, wow, we should be applying this in other places too. 
um, it's really fascinating, especially the story of how you came about it. Yeah, no, I, I think it would be great for management. Like you could exactly, do testing yeah. on training materials. Yeah. And in a management case, you really just want to deploy, like within the scope of my company, I just wanted to deploy what's best, um, what seems to be working the best. Uh, it would be really cool. Right. Um, I also want to be in your kitchen when you run in with some of these questions. <laughs> it's got to be a fun time. Oh um, um, yeah, there's a tweet. One night we were I can't remember what we were talking about, but we ended up like sketching on notepads. So my husband's also a mechanical engineer, and there were all these graphs on notepad paper in the kitchen. And I I took a. It was so funny to me that I actually took a picture of it and tweeted it um, with all the different graphs that the three of us had drawn over pizza. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can see another podcast, Dinner at Ellie's. <laughs> I think that yeah. would be fantastic. <laughs> I don't know. So my husband is a is a car engineer, so yeah. um, that might actually increase, you know, there's the data nerd corner of the world, but the car guy people, like if you get that crossover audience, it's really cool. So he does um, data acquisition for race cars. So he looks at wow. data collected on race car performance to try to um, make decisions about how to make the car and the driver perform better. In a it's fascinating. Well, well, I tell you, I was having a conversation with a, um, a marketer the other day, and they were comparing the digital agency, the digital, ad, I'm sorry, the ad agency of the past to the one of the future. And the one of the past is like the, the Mad Men style where you have the creative and they all do what they do and, and come up with the creatives. And then you have the digital agencies with technology. And, mm -hmm. and he was saying that the ad agency of the future um, is going to have uh, more data scientists and it'll be, it'll look like a stock trading floor almost um, because of the science and the math that'll be needed uh, to perform. And I'm curious, like, what do you see as the market of the future and what skills are required? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I wish I knew the answer. I think about it a lot as a professor, right? Because I'm training future marketers. Um, and one of the data points someone gave me early on when I started working at Drexel five years ago, they said, do you know what the top job was for our marketing grads 20 years ago? And I was like, I don't know. And they said pharmaceutical sales representative, someone who goes and visits physicians and tries to convince them of the benefits of a new pharmaceutical. Um, so very much a one-on-one -on -one selling kind of job. And then they said, do you know what today's students, their top job is? And it, it turns out the answer to that is they go to search engine marketing. That's the number one job for our undergrad marketing um, major, which is kind of a very data oriented job, right? Like if you've ever looked at the back end of, um, you know, setting up a Google campaign, it's a lot of data. Um, and so I think it's going to be really important that our students are comfortable with data um, so, you know, data is the key to driving efficiency and scale as marketers. Um, it's the trick. So the trick is we're moving from a world where an individual person met with a physician and tried to give them a kind of customized communication experience. Um, but we need to do that more efficiently than one-on-one -on -one sales jobs. We need to um, scale that up digitally so that we can provide customized experience to 10K or 100K customers. Um, and in order to do that, you're going to, data will be the engine that drives that. Um, but then, you know, sometimes people will ask me, do they all need to be data scientists? I don't, I don't think so. You know, I think of myself as a data scientist and I like building models and I know R and Python and all those kinds of data skills, but I don't think every marketer needs to do that. Um, and the reason I don't think every marketer should be a science is that, um, data science will tell you what's working and how to optimize your current strategy. 
but it won't tell you what the next and so we're still going to need people who think very creative about how to interact with customers. And, um, you know, I occasionally get a student in my digital marketing class for undergrads that's a graphic designer. And they say, should I quit graphic design and become a data scientist? Well, no, because um, this, this new world we're going to is also going to need graphic designers because if, the, if there's no graphic designers then there's nothing for the data scientists to A-B test. Um, so I think it's going to be a combination of creative and street skills with um, people who are data scientists. So I don't think it'll look like a trading floor. Um, I think it'll look like a cool place where there is someone smoking pot in the break room like in Mad Men. <laughs> and there's also people who are, you know, maybe drinking a beer with their computer and doing the data science to figure out what's working. Um, so I think it's going to be a mixture of those things. Since data science is a relatively newer term, I mean, I know we had it in the past, but it's relatively popular. I think I think we're going to come to you for that next term. It's going to come out of Ellie. Oh, we have to, we have to come up with the term for the, the, the person who smokes pot right. in the break room. Yeah, exactly. Well, are you seeing any companies doing this well now? Or? Yeah, I think um, I have like kind of a broad answer to that. I don't know if you are looking for me to name specific companies, but broadly the retailers, industries, yeah. Yeah, the retailers really have this nailed. And whether that's like Kroger you know, Kroger actually has a data science arm that sells Kroger data to other firms. So um, they actually take their loyalty card data and make that available, say, to a consumer packaged goods company that wants to understand the sales trends for their particular product. Um, and so the retailers really, they own this customer data, they own a relationship. And in terms of coming up with the next way to tailor customer experiences, I think they're really the leading edge where when I talk to like, you know, in the 1990s, the big marketing companies were the C firms and the car companies. But if you talk to a C firm or a car company, they don't have any direct relationships with customers. In fact, they really want them. Um, you know, you see the car companies are launching more subscription-based services because they want to build that one-to-one that -one relationship with the customer that they don't have when they sell a car. Um, and so I really think it's going to be the retailers. Um, if I was a student graduating from Drexel, I would really think about joining a retailer because I think that's where you're going to learn kind of all the skills that you need to be a great marketer in the Fantastic. Well, Ellie, this has been, uh, Dan, you got anything else you, you want to press in on? No, I mean, Ellie, do you want to share? Um, so your article is available uh, at Marketing Science. Um, or you can find it uh, that was published by Marketing Science. Obviously, follow you on Twitter at uh, Ellie Fight, um, yep. and we'll share all of this. Um, you have the test, um, the, the sample size calculator out there um, as a uh, website, testenroll.com. Uh -huh. We will um, all be uh, checking out your new Python book very soon. Do you have anything else you want to? Um, yeah, just, just, kind of just to clarify on the part, paper, it was published by Marketing Science. It's behind a paywall there. Uh, but there's an earlier preprint version on it on the website SSRN. So if people want to read the paper, they can find it there. And my Twitter handle is E-L-E-A-F-E-I-T. And uh, size calculator, test and roll size, sample size calculator, test and roll .com. Maybe you said that already, Dan. Sorry. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, gosh, Ellie, this has been fantastic. The, uh, it's always great to talk to you. Um, I hope we talk to you once a month as you pummel out these or pummel out these books <laughs> and papers. Uh, they're always so uh, gratifying to us, and uh, they provide us a lot of direction. So thanks again for making the time to come on. Yeah, and, and I can't uh, wait to see you guys when Data John is back in person. Excellent.